Hi, everyone, and welcome to Here We Stand. I'm your host, Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice, and it's March 12th. Well, 2,500 years ago, during the Peloponnesian Wars, the Greek statesman and warrior Thucydides said this to his fellow Athenians on the eve of battle. O people, remember now the bravest ones among you, those citizens who clearly see the danger that lies ahead and yet do not hesitate to go out and meet it. Well, it's been my honor over the years to walk in the company of those kind of radiant, brave souls, and to know them as my true family, as people who carry the burdens and struggles of humanity in their own hearts and lives. Today on our show, we'll be remembering those just souls without whom our people have no future. One of these souls was my departed friend and sister, Colia Lafayette Clark, a lifelong fighter for justice and a grassroots leader of the American Civil Rights Movement. Colia and I first came to know each other nearly a decade ago now, in New York City, where she regularly interviewed me on her community TV station, and when nobody else would, gave a platform for the voices of murdered Indigenous children and our campaign to prosecute those responsible, the genocidal Canadian state and churches. In recent programs on Here We Stand, I've interviewed one of Coley's daughters, a fellow fighter named Akko Anwanyu, who I'm delighted to have back today on our show. As well as Akko, we're going to be featuring a recent interview I did with our sister Georgina Smith from Australia about my recent book, Land of Liberty. It contains a personal account of some of our forgotten revolutionary legacy and how recalling it helps our struggle today against tyranny and for self-governance and liberty. You can follow more of that struggle on our sites, murderbydecree.com and republicofkanata.org. And now let's bring on Akko Anwanyu. Welcome back, Akko. Hi, everybody. How are you? Doing fine today. And uh, yeah. I wonder, Echo, if you could tell our new listeners something about yourself and what we're going to be discussing today. Absolutely. I am the daughter of the amazing Colia Lafayette Clark, Liddell Lafayette Clark. Um, and I'm coming back today to talk about a part of my mother's revolutionary action that she didn't talk about. And as a revolutionary, as a black woman, a part that she was reticent to talk about simply because of the effect that it might have on the black community, and that was rape. My mother was a victim of rape, and as a result of that, I am here. I was conceived in rape as a result of a rape that happened, which my mother resisted, but six months later, she found out she was pregnant with me, and that is what we will be talking about today. Why are we talking about that today? Because it's very important to understand what marginalized women go through, even those who are as brave and, uh, you know, powerful as my mother, the things that they go through when dealing with rape, when dealing with being a woman, and what that means to struggle and what that means to their own personal lives. Mm -hmm. So for me, um, this is really important because my mother, I lived her lived experience with her of raising a child who was conceived in rape, and I saw what she went through and the agony that she went through trying to raise me and at the same time be fair to me and at the same time sort of resist the idea that she was being forced to raise a child that she did not want in the first place. And she was clear about that. She never, that's what I love about my mom. She was always honest. And I just want to say, I just kind of want to read, if it's okay, I'm just going to read a, a bit of Robert T. Miller's blog post. He says, children born of rape, that's the name of it, children born of rape face a painful legacy. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention reports that 32,000 pregnancies in the United States occur each year as a result of rape, 
approximately 12,000 of which are carried to term and raised by their birth mothers. These children often develop poor parent-child relationships as violent rape can affect mental capacity to care for the child and to form a loving bond. Now, in my experience, that certainly was the case with my mother. Um, my mom was amazing, and I need to be clear. One of the things that happens and one of the things I, like, it just it's kind of a unnerving for me is when people are attacking people and, oh, they were abusive. No, my mother was not an abuser. My mother was a survivor and she was trying to figure out how to raise all of her children. I was not her only child. She had three children prior to me and deal with having been raped and deal with, as you know, racism and sexism and all of the other things that were happening around her. And even as my mother was leaving the world, some of those problems were still there. So um, marginal mothers are faced with like two hurdles when they're raped. How do I deal with this rape and how do I raise this child? One of a a relative, like around the time that my mother was getting ready to pass and and make her transition into the hereafter, he said, you know, uh, just very callously, he would conceive at a time when genocide by abortion was being pushed in the black community. If she didn't want you, she wouldn't have had you. Well, as I stated earlier, my mom, I was, she was pregnant with me for six months before she even knew. And that's just one problem. Another problem with that is we pre- it presumes that, you know, somehow or another women who are raped or any woman just is going to casually walk into a, an abortion office, abortion clinic, and have an abortion. Abortions are hard, especially for marginalized women, because a lot of times you don't have money, you don't have support, and there's, you know, there's all sorts of religious and spiritual things surrounding abortion that just make you feel like, oh, my God, I can't do that. And if somebody, like his statement said, you know, this is genocide by abortion, just the thought, you know, that my mother was kind of, she would have, she would have if I had been, like, say, three months in utero, she would have had to face the idea that somehow or another I'm going to be killing a community, and that makes me a horrible person, and so now I have to carry this child to term. And I, my mother, I was listening to something recently where she was talking about Native American women and what they've had to do in terms of their own struggle was just trying to survive. And she was talking about reservations and, you know, some women who would talk to her about rape on the reservation and how they had to handle that. And I think um, that one of the things that she was able to do in terms of making connections, because there's always connections between marginalized women, is the idea that we have to have this kind of loyalty regardless of what has happened. Do you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Um, the loyalty to men to keep them alive. Because the average black man wasn't running around raping women. And she understood Mm -hmm. that. And the women in the movement understood that. But that did not stop them from being raped by this underclass of men, these men who came out because they saw the opportunity to be predators and who then had to be protected in order to protect the whole race. They had to protect this small group. I, I'm going to stop. Did you have any questions? I heard you say something, and I don't want to over. No, no, it's good. I just I wanted to give you the floor, and if some something comes up, I'll ask. But this is really important for everyone to hear. So go ahead. Okay. Yeah. So you know, for my mom, she didn't want to tell anyone, and her and her friends. She had two friends. One who actually gave me a name. And I need to stop for a second and say that Akho Anwanyu came about as a result of me not having a name. Akho Anwanyu is one of the names that I write under. 
I actually, mm-hmm. now that my mother has passed, actually finally have a name. My, I was given a name, but my mother did not, in her act of resistance, did not give me that name. So I spent most of my life under the name Female Lafayette. I did not have a name, um, which wow. is something else my relative discussed. He said, well, you know, she did give you a name. She let you carry her name. No, I carried her name because simply she had nothing else to give. The people at the hospital told her, like, hey, you know, you can give her a name. You've got 60 days. And for a woman who had been raped, she didn't even want to think about me being alive, let alone give Amazing. me Right, Amazing. and I understand that now, and I understand. We're so defined by our name, our identity, you know. Absolutely, absolutely, and my my mom kept me. A lot of times, I was kept in in rooms. I wasn't allowed to come out, and I didn't understand wow. until I was much older. Like you know, there was a lot of hitting, a lot of, you know, anything you yeah. can think of that would happen to a kid from molestation to whatever else was happening to me, and I couldn't understand as I got older. Like why was this happening until I was around fifteen? And my mom said, I need to tell you something. And that's when I found out about my father, whose name was Carl. He was a serial rapist. She mm-hmm. said, if you want to find out about him, you can go to the library. And I was, like I said, 14, 15. And it was the longest walk of my life from where we were. It was upstate New York. From my home to the library seemed to take days. It only took a couple of hours. probably, And only a couple of hours because I kept stopping. I would think. I would sit on a park bench. And when I got there and I finally got a chance to see him, it would change everything about my life. And from that moment, I became both rebellious against my mother because I was a teen, but also very dedicated and devoted to her. I just wanted to show her, like, listen, I'm not like him. I'm not a rapist. But I I stopped feeling human on that day. And I became simply a monster, like a demon in her doorway. And I began to understand why she was so mean. And like one minute she could be very sweet to me and the next minute she could be very cold or she was saying that my sister Devanya was a true daughter or you ruined my son's lives and you ruined mine. And some people could say, well, she was so cruel. No, she wasn't. She was resisting. And I need to go back to this. Women yeah. who are raped are being told, literally being told, well, you have to keep this baby. It's a mother's love. No, this is a human being. Mothers are not people who are just naturally sweet and they love you and they pick you up. Mothers are actual actual human beings who carry you into the world. And if you're fortunate, you have one who, who has the ability to be very sweet and loving and kind. But a lot of times they're coming with their own trauma. They're trying to yep. work through their trauma. And if you're talking about poor and marginalized women, they're trying to survive day to day. So right. for Mama, she was trying to make sure her sons got everything that they needed that they were educated. In fact, another, you know, one of my brothers said, yeah, I had a great childhood. You know, I had everything I needed. You know, there was a couple of things, but, you know, I was supported by friends and family and I was just, it was great. And I thought, wow, we had such a different experience because there were a couple of things happening. One, I was conceived in rape, but another thing is that he was a boy. And for my mother, having strong black males in around her and in her family who were successful was so important. One of the things she said to me was that, you know, and she she just kind of drilled that that home for me was, a woman is not a woman until she becomes a mother of sons. So for Mm -hmm. her, her sons were just central to everything that she was doing, all the work that she was doing. And women were kind of, you know, on the side. Like she told me when I was doing work for women, she would say, well, we can do this work, but this is the work that we do 
you know, it's almost kind of like a hobby. Because I don't want to kind of quote her because I don't remember the exact words and I don't want to lie on her. So, you know, those were the things that Mama, that's what she, what she was like really all about. She wanted mm-hmm. strong sons. She understood that we were in a, a, a world where men were in charge. And in order for the community, our community to thrive, men had to know how to lead. They had to know how to take care of families, how to raise babies. They needed to have the opportunity to own homes and to just really be in the in a world where they could be, they could get their full support. Like she wouldn't even take child support from or push for child support from my brother's fathers because she simply did not want them to feel like they couldn't do their work in the world. And that was for a lot of women, I think, you know, during that time. Another thing I wanted to point out, my mom never reported the rape. My father eventually ended up going to jail for the rape of, I believe, over 30 women and young girls. He was caught coming out of the Tombs Police Department in New York City for a traffic violation. And the two officers, arresting officers that saw him were like, wow, isn't that the guy? They caught him and he admitted to it. By the time, and my mother insisted that I meet him, I will always, that's always the one thing that will puzzle me is like, why did she feel that I needed to meet him? But in her mind, she felt I needed all parts of myself. So when I did get a chance to meet him, he lied and said, no, I didn't rape 30 women. I only raped three. And I was a teenager at the time and I was very sarcastic. And I said, wow, only three, huh? And later on, he would come and he would say, no, I, you know, I raped four women. He never admitted to raping you know, to all the women that he raped, but he did admit that most of them were white. And as far as he was concerned, my black mother, he didn't, I don't even think he thought a black woman could be raped, especially when it was dark skin. He was very colorist in his worldview. Um, so mama now, one thing I wanted to ask that. you came to mind before I forget was, did this make you kind of at a young age acutely aware of the suffering around you and the injustice even more in the world because of your own Absolutely. experience? Yeah. Absolutely. It was. Everywhere I went, I tended to be surrounded by marginalized women. Mama, in fact, you know, um, until I was older, my mother usually was around women who were like her. They didn't, they were poor. My mother worked at shelters. A lot of times we were homeless. We spent a lot of time moving around. And when my brothers, like one of my brothers had gotten a, you know, my uncle got him into college, so he was being taken care of. And my other brothers, they had their father. I was with mama. I was with her you know, slinging through the dirt. And we were there, you know, living, like I said, being put out. Um, I know in one apartment we had prisoners that were living underneath us, and she was fighting against that, like how, and my brother, one of my brothers was still with me at the time, and she was like, you know, no, like, you know, why are these people here? You know, not that she was putting down prisoners. She supported everybody, but she didn't feel it was fair to her children to have ex-cons and hardened ex-cons who were ex-rapists and murderers living under her children. So, you know, um, it did. I, I, I was able to, and I still am, and I, and I appreciate her so much for that. I'm able to look at people and really kind of balance out in my mind who the person is without making a judgment. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think I picked up just from being around all the people who Mama was around. She didn't care whether you were rich or whether you yep. were poor. Yep. As far as she was concerned. She wanted to work with you. She wanted to help change the world. Her only that was her all right. and I will. Huh? That was her, all right. Yeah, she's beautiful that way. Yeah, her only conflict, I think, was was me in trying to figure out how do I, because you can't talk, you can't tell anybody, hey, this is what happened to me. So 
So how do I deal with this child I did not want? And Mm. she did, as far as I'm concerned, she did a great job. She really worked hard at it, but it was difficult. I understand that now. I can remember the periods of anger where I'm like, you know, why are you treating me like this? Why am I so different? Even if you were raped, because you don't understand when you're much younger, right? Even if you were raped, why, why do I deserve this? And then I began to understand that she was only doing the best she could with what she had. So I am yeah. here to begin to hopefully, I'm hoping that, you know, um, a lot of the resistance that I've met, even just telling the story, even like years ago, I started telling the story and, oh my gosh, some of the things that I got, I got threats and, you know, we're going to do this and we're going to tear you down. I don't care. I'm going to tell this story. I'm not walking with anything that's a lie. I believe 100% in truth. And I understand that my mother's story can't be something that should be looked at as, as, let me take a second, shamefully. My mother was raped. She wasn't the rapist. She wasn't the monster. So why should she have, should she have had to hide a part of herself, to hide a part of her story? Why should that have made her less of a revolutionary in other people's eyes? Mm -hmm. And then there's me. There's me and there's across the world. I have a family. It's an unspoken family. We don't know each other. I've only met a few people who were conceived in rape. But none of us deserve to look up and say, oh, my God, like I'm a horrible person. I'm an abomination. I now Mm -hmm. suffer from chronic PTSD, and I suffer from chronic PTSD precisely because of how I was treated as a result of being conceived in rape. That doesn't mean that I feel sorry for myself. No, I'm my mother's daughter. I'm a resistor. That means that I reach out and I say to people who have been conceived in rape, I'm here. If you need me, call me. If you, you know, they can call me through you. They can reach out to me through email. But the one Mm -hmm. thing that we can't do anymore is treat children born of rape as if somehow or another, persons born of rape, as if somehow or another, we are the people who committed the crime and not the actual rapists. We are not our fathers. And our birthright is joy. So we have to push forward with the resistance against not just rape, but against way, the way that rape victims are treated. I think in the U.K. now that they have it so that rape-conceived persons are now also seen as victims. But that should, the same thing should be happening here, period. And my mother should never... I'm so sorry. Do you, do you see any movement in that direction, you know, by legislatures or even awareness? Um, I know, think people have been talking about it a bit more, but I see more advances from everything that I'm reading in other countries than I do here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we need to spend more time telling women, especially women who are in the movement. You know, you're in the movement. You're in, you're out there resisting. You're on a Mm -hmm. reservation, you're resisting. Wherever you are resisting, you should not have to worry about getting raped. And then if you do get raped, you shouldn't have to worry about hating your kid because you don't have any way to get the support that you need to be able to raise your child or to give your child up for adoption or to have an abortion. Tell us a little bit about the work you did with your mom of, you know, public campaigns and other stuff. Um, one of the biggest uh, campaigns I did with Mama was around Amadou Giallo, which is something that I still look back on and I remember, you know, just quite, I mean, I did a lot of stuff with her over the years, but I remember that because I remember my mother singing, we had gone to the site of Amadou Giallo's murder 
And there was no way at all that the police that killed him, their their whole thing was that they couldn't see him. They thought he had a gun in his hand. Absolutely not. It was so lit up that they could have seen his soul. You know, basically, that's how much light was out there. But they shot him anyway. And we, we've seen so many cases like that now that no one, I'm, I'm sure, is surprised. But at that time, it was just like, oh, my God, like, are you, are you kidding me? And after it was over, my mother was still moving the crowd. She was still making sure that people were staying connected. That's the one thing that I've learned across the years through uh, watching my mother and other revolutionaries and participating in revolutionary actions myself is that people begin to disconnect once that moment is over, once the rally is over, once the protest is over. And Mama, one of the things that she was really good at was making sure people remained connected. And I heard this voice, and I thought to myself, wow, this woman sounds just like Mahalia Jackson, and it was so beautiful. And the crowd was, once again, just beginning to stir. All of that, you know, that tired sadness that comes about after you see something like that, and you see where somebody's shot, and you see all the, you know, the fallout afterwards. Now, again, the energy was being pulled back up. And I said out loud before I even knew it, that's my mother, (laughs) because it shocked me. (laughs) I know her voice, but her voice, it was like something inside of her just just totally let loose. And this beautiful voice was just spread like a blanket across the crowd. And it's just amazing to, I was telling someone recently about it, it's amazing to look back on. And to think, wow, you know, that powerful woman was my mother. She used to do that on her interviews. She would break in the song all the time. It's great. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And you know what? Song was a big part of her revolutionary action. It really was. And she was able to get people up. I mean, my mom, I watched my mother pull people up who were in interaction, who were absolutely shy or they were resistant there was a woman who was shouting, <laughs> you know, at us as we were going to protest. Like, I don't want this in front of my house. And my mother talked to her, and like five minutes later, the lady's walking with us. <laughs> so that was <laughs> that Beautiful. was the kind of energy that my mom walked with, you know. And right. that's why, you know, I don't want, you know, I never wanted to ever feel that her a part of her story was left untold. So that's why I came to talk today, and I really appreciate being able to talk about it. Well, I, I want you to come back on again and, and share lots of stuff. I'm sorry we only got half the show today, but, um, yeah, because it's so important to all of us to learn these lessons. And, to, you know, people have led by example their whole life. It's just, you know, we've got to hear more. Absolutely, absolutely. I know you said I only had a few minutes today. I've kept that in mind, so I definitely appreciate being here. Whenever you want me to come back, please let me know. I sure will. you got about six minutes, so anyway, if you want to close by even leaving contact information or any links you want to send or anything to share. Absolutely, absolutely. Let me pull up. In fact, I'm going to pull up my email now so that people can have it. So if you want to reach me, I can be reached at goldenteacher26 at gmail.com. This is for anybody who is working with someone who has been raped and maybe they've conceived a child from rape. I have a project um, that I've been working on for the last five years. Um, I really wanted to wait. She was kind of waiting because my mother was in the hospital. 
So that will be out within the next six months, and that is The Flame That Burns the Phoenix, and it's thriving and surviving for persons conceived of rape. So if anyone conceived or born of rape, so if anyone needs any help, if you just need someone to talk to, I get it. I understand. I've been there. I'm I'm definitely somebody who understands how to resist and how to stand up for yourself. You can definitely give me, reach out to me, goldenteacher26 at gmail.com again. Is that Golden Teacher? Yep, goldenteacher26 at gmail.com. Good. And what's what are you involved with these days, other things? Um, tell us um, right now, about... I am writing full-time and, of course, raising an amazing kid. So yeah. <laughs> she basically is my boss. So I spend a lot mm-hmm. of time, you know, uh, just pretty much doing what my boss tells me to do. <laughs> And making sure we prepare, you know, uh, my mother's youngest grandchild for the next, you know, the next part of the revolution and whatever contribution she will give yeah. in the future. Yeah, Chara is absolutely amazing. You know, the kid just, she keeps me smiling. It's so important. Life-giving, right? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And what do you, you know, just in the last five minutes, what are some of the other issues you think we should be touching on in relation to this, kind of the broader panorama here, you know? Um, well, one of the first issues is finance, financial support for women who are co- who conceive children of rape. Not just women mm-hmm. who conceive children of rape, but women who are raped in general, especially in marginalized communities. Um, a lot of times people are like, well, why don't they go for counseling? Can you afford it? A lot of times marginalized women can't. Then yeah. it's, uh, you know, just the things that they're met with. Like, you know, in one instance, um, a counselor said, well, why don't you try to psychically kill the rapist? You know, just the insensitivity that a lot of uh, women who are raped um, deal with when they're dealing with, you know, rape crisis and other places that might not really care about the voice of marginalized women. Oftentimes, unfortunately, white women's bodies are more sacred, I think, in the eyes of the world than women who are from these other communities. And we have to begin to stop that. I think that there are a lot of groups out there from across the world, from all kinds of backgrounds who are beginning to do that work, but we need more. And I think that there needs to be more support across the board for legal action against fathers who have raped women um, in this country. And we need to get to the place where the UK is now where if a child is conceived of rape, that child is seen as a just as much of a victim of that rape as the mother. And a lot of times for persons conceived in rape, there is no support for us. They're like, Oh, well, you didn't you didn't experience it. Well actually we probably experienced we didn't experience the rape, but we experienced other things that may have left us, you know, um, completely unable to even deal with life in the right way. Me I guess because of who I grew up around, I've always been resilient and I've always been able to get out and do what I need to do. But there are lots of other people who don't have that same kind of system around them. Um, And we definitely need more help for persons conceived of rape and women who conceive as a result of rape and just rape, rape persons in general. I don't want to make this a gendered issue, but Uh because we're talking about children conceived in rape, we do need to, look at the fact that a lot of mothers who conceive and rape don't get support. Right. Echo, it's been amazing. And is that golden teacher 26 at yep. Gmail? 
goldenteacher26 at gmail.com. Reach out anytime. And this is especially for my brothers and sisters who were conceived in the same way. You are not alone. I am here. Thank you, Echo. And I'd like you back in April. Mid-April, we're doing a whole bunch of teachings on the whole campaign. Uh, April 15th, we named as Indigenous Holocaust Awareness Day. And so we've been doing that for almost 20 years now, and I think we this is all related to that very much. So we'd love you back on during April if you can make it. Absolutely, and I have to remind me to send you a clip. I have a clip of Mama talking about uh, women on the uh, reservations and what they've been through, and I would love to send that to you, and maybe we can wrap up the the next interview around around her speaking in her own way. That'd be great. Let's do it. All right. Thank you. Yeah, oh, thank you. Thank you so much, and I'll talk to you guys in April. You sure will. Thank you. Bye for now. And uh, it's amazing listening to Akko because it reminds me so much of Coley. And um, and so, again, goldenteacher26 at gmail.com if you want to get a hold of her. And, you know, when Akko was speaking, something hit me, uh, something I used to say to people sometimes in sermons. There was a whole tradition saying, Jesus was born of rape, that there was a long tradition in Christianity saying his father was a Roman soldier. And in fact, the way Mary had been ostracized and Jesus grew up disenfranchised and poor, who better to have a special empathy for those on the outside than Jesus, born in that condition? And Echo reminded me of that today. So I want to remember that no matter how bad things have been for you, there's a purpose. And we certainly saw that today. And you know, a true revolutionary is somebody who doesn't organize others. They are catalyst, and they spark that vision within other people that can then lead to action. And that kind of leads us into the second part of the show, which is an interview I just did with our sister, Georgina Smith in Australia, a very brave woman. She's in her 60s. She walks into Catholic churches, confronts them very peacefully and nonviolently over the fact of their crime, about how they're still raping children, and they actually have a policy in the Catholic Church Crimen solicitanus, which allows priests to get away with rape. It says every Catholic has to cover up child rape, or they're excommunicated, as if God doesn't like a snitch. So Georgina, like Coley, was one of those brave souls who didn't look at the danger. She just went and spoke. And she did an interview with me about this book I wrote called Land of Liberty, where I look, again, make it personal, look into our own family, look at our tradition within our Anna family of resisting this kind of genocide and oppression over past, present, and future. And we're going to listen that to, the, to that for the last part of the show. But remember, during and after this interview, that its lessons and our words today are there not just to listen to and go away and never do anything about it. It's to involve you in our movement, because it's a life-given movement. There's no excuse to look around and say, well, what can we do about it? People have blazed the trail already. People like Coley and Akko and others who... We're going to be mentioning, especially during April, Indigenous Holocaust Memorial Day, started on April 15, 2005, when we started protesting the churches in Vancouver, the Catholic, the Anglican, the United Churches that did the crime, but also are continuing the crime. And in their memory of the people who are not here anymore, we're going to revive that again. The weekend of April 15th, we're doing teachings on that, but we've got to know our, our real history. And that's the purpose of the latter part of the show today. We're going to hear that interview, and that'll be the show for today. But if you want to contact us, write to Republic National Council, 
at protonmail.com. That's for the Republic of Canada within Canada, outside the criminal jurisdiction of the so-called Crown of England in Canada. Angelfire101 at protonmail.com is uh, my email. And, of course, our website's murderbydecree.com and republicofcanata.org. That's K-A-N-A-T-A, republicofcanata.org. And Canada, of course, in the Haudenosaunee language, means where the people sit as one around the council fire. And that's our model for our new nation and for the global revolution to reclaim our lives from violence and tyranny into the natural law, which governs all of us inherently. So it's been great to talk to you all today and to exchange with Hako, and we're going to have her back in April. Again, if you want to get a hold of her, that's goldenteacher26 at gmail.com. And enjoy the rest of the, uh, the show today, the interview with Georgina Smith and myself. Take it to heart and get on board the Freedom Train. We'll be back next week with more. This is Kevin Annick, Eagle Strong Voice, and I thank you. And today, so we have a, a huge book, Land of Liberty, and it's been described as the greatest of, of yeah, that's the one, of, of all your works. And it's, it's very recent. And, 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 and so let's, um, you tell us about it. <laughs> well, you know, I, when I wrote it, it was after writing many other books about this work I've done for a quarter century. And I wanted to step back even more and really almost, uh, I didn't call it this or anything, but it's like war and peace. Tolstoy tried to summarize great historic events through the lens and the eyes of particular families in Russia. And I've done the same with my family. So what this book is, it's fiction, but it's really not fiction. It's based on real people, real events. Uh, some of it conjecture, but talking about the past, present, and future in our Annette family. The past, my ancestor, Philip Annette there on the wall, who came to Canada from England with his family. That's his father, Robert Annette there. Robert was a... British officer who had fought at Waterloo and the British government gave free land to British officers who were retired. And so Robert got 300 acres of land in Southern Ontario and they all moved there in the 1820s. They had to get out of England because they were Baptists and they weren't allowed to practice. So, you know, religious dissidents for many centuries fleeing to Canada or moving to Canada. Ironically, his son, Philip take us, takes up arms and uh, takes part in the rebellion against the British crown in 1837. Mm -hmm. So the first part of the book is about Philip Annett, his involvement in, in the insurrection, but also his conflict with his father, who's a very conservative, you know, crown-loving British officer, who they're on two sides of a civil war. And uh, the second part is my story today, in the present time. Mm -hmm. And really looking at the whole issue of the genocide from the from a longer view that is really what we talk about the corporatocracy this corporate tyranny that's taken over the world um got started by the genocide against indigenous people and the third part of the story is the future what would happen if our republic of canada triumphed but then we're in a so it's talking about the in the future the republic in canada at and a huge war with this china-led corporatocracy and um, and so it really spans hundreds of years, but it's looking at again all these issues. I 
I, right at the beginning, I say um, the purpose of this novel is to ask, how did we come to the present tyranny and how might we overcome it from the point of view of the Annett family? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of in a nutshell what mm-hmm. I did, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's epic. And it's it's from uh, an amazingly, you know, uh, expansive position perspective and and very much to do with on the ground and i mean that the 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 generations of the annett family um your story is running right through it and the the uh, that uh, the other book that we talked about land of no one it, it's it's you know there's not one of your works is 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 it, it, it's you are you are part of that story and um and 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 we, and, and it's a kind of a um, it's a part of this very land of liberty, the whole thing, because if, you know, oh, yeah. if it wasn't for that, that COVID tyranny, um, the, 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 you know, the, um, it, it couldn't have happened without that reign of, of terror on the children. And it all began there. Well, yeah. As a matter of fact, in the story, I tie together my story and Philip's story very personally, because in the story, Philip Anna takes part in the rebellion. His father saves his life because his father has connections with a guy called General Colburn, who led the British forces that crushed the rebellion. Colburn and Robert Annett had fought together at Waterloo. And so Robert goes to Colburn after and pleads for the life of his son, who's a hunted rebel. Because after the rebellion was uh, crushed, people were hanged, deported to Australia, uh, Tasmania, and hundreds of Canadian rebels were sent there and they were hunting people like Philip Annett. Well, his dad, Robert, made a deal with Colburn in exchange for sparing Philip's life. They were turn over the Chippewa Indians they knew because in the area around Watford, where my family uh, emigrated to in southwest Ontario, they, the Crown was hunting down Chippewa Indians and putting them, guess where? in this facility called, we call the Mushole, the Mohawk School, which started out right in the same year the rebellion was crushed. They opened the, the, the Mohawk Indian School as an experimental center. And I describe how they were scooping up native people, not only to drive them off their land and kill them en masse, but to take the children, put them in this Mohawk School for experimental purposes. Uh, trying out all these new torture and and you know mind control devices. Mm-hmm. Even back in the 1800s, they were doing it. We've got that from eyewitnesses. So mm-hmm. karmically, what happens is Philip and the Annets gained their life. I'm here today because he, at the expense of the Chippewa Indians, who he turned over, they were friends with them, and he he agreed to uh, you know allow them to be gathered up. Uh, even though they were they they had sanctuary on his land, mm-hmm. that was the price he paid for his life, mm-hmm. and it haunted him. He passed on it to mm-hmm. his descendants. And even though I didn't know about that, there I am at the mush hole doing the dig, uh, uncovering the remains of these children. Almost, you know, the 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 spirit uh, carrying on in me to try to get justice to overcome this historical wrong we had been involved in, this mm-hmm. genocide that we had participated in, and yet fighting against. So showing that that shadow and light in every family mm. is something Canadians can't do because they refuse mm. to look at that shadow and light within themselves. Yes, so we kind of shone in a, a spotlight on that within our own Annette family. Every yeah. family. Every family has their hidden 
And going back to Tolstoy, um, War and Peace, um, I, not that I've read it, but, you know, that, that, that all of life um, is about conflict. And, and so then you've got this amazing moment in, that you're describing where um, his, his wife, um, it, it, she, she confronts him, doesn't she, about it. It's it's just so moving and gripping and devastating and well that's right the uh, you know like Philip whose life was saved by this deal he didn't know about it till till much later Robert had made the deal his father because there was this uh, native woman who had taken sanctuary on their land her name was Gizi and three she and her three children were hiding out from um, these these crown posse's were going out just wiping out any Chippewa Indians they found. There was a monopoly called the Canada Company owned by this thing called the Family Compact. It's like this oligarchy that was running Canada. It still does, right? And um, so they, they, they needed Indians. And so they, Philip didn't know that his life had been bought through the sacrifice of these Chippewa Indians who had befriended them. Um, oh. And then later, Robert's wife confronts him and said, you know, we're going to carry this in our family, we, you know, she was a very devout Baptist woman. She said, mm -hmm. you can't do this wrong and then not reverberate one generation mm -hmm. to the next because we're part of the blood is on our hands and mm -hmm. you can't wash it away. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's just so like today, people think, Oh, we issue an apology and things are fine. I mean, that's lying to ourselves. It's fooling ourselves because you got to go into the roots and find out where it started, mm -hmm. the blood on our hands, face mm -hmm. it. And then maybe there'll be some kind of change. So this is how we're trying to do it within our family um, mm -hmm. by looking at this. And it's a very lonely thing to do because nobody wants to do it. Right. Mm -hmm. In my family, I'm the only one. My father and I are the only ones <laughs> willing to look at this in the whole Annett family. Right. So this is Bill, your father. My father. Yeah. There he is on the wall. That's yes. Bill and me. My dad. Yes. Right? Yes. That's his dad. Okay. I should show you that. That's oh. dad and me in the middle. This yeah. is Ross Anna, my grandfather. Wow. That's uh, Philip Anna over there. Mm. And up there, that's my uncle Bob, my dad's brother who died in the war. Um, the great and, sacrifice. Uh, mm. Family sacrifice. Yes. Mm. That's right. So, I mean, you know, it, it's yeah. an attempt to, to make, make it personal, which you've got to do with any great event. You've mm -hmm. got to bring it down to earth and see how we're all part of the story. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, it, it's funny too, the, the other Annette we talk about is Peter Annette, the philosopher in, he was a free thinker and philosopher in England before that in the 1700s. And he got arrested, put in jail when he was 70 for writing these, they're called the free inquirer. Um, he questioned the Bible. He said, could Jesus really perform miracles? Let's talk about this. Let's reason it out. Uh, and he was accused of the crown of blasphemous libel, where you, if you challenge the doctrines of the Christian church, specifically the Church of England, you can go to the slammer for it, which is what happened to him. Uh, but right at the beginning of this, written in 1769, uh, Peter wrote, and this could be my words, we shall expose the hidden works of darkness and drive mm -hmm. falsity to the bottomless pit. That's exactly what I've oh, been doing. But I know. I just it's love a reverberation. Mm. that spirit reverberating down mm. through the generations and you don't know about this till you engage in it yourself and then you realize wait a minute there's a whole family drama playing itself out here right 
so he 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 was consciously aware as he wrote that about his own family is that i don't know i i very little is known about peter on it uh except he was uh put in the stocks there's the records Mm. of his trial uh he'd been born in liverpool he was a dissenting clergyman who left the ministry like i did to be an itinerant free thinker he lived in london he was part of the robin hood society which was kind of a free thinking radical group um a lot of these guys were locked up the publications banned you know because if you challenge the church you're challenging the crown church and state are like that right yeah um and And so he was being political he was being political. He didn't even realize it because he was taking on the church and the state, both like I did, right? With the Rose School Amazing. genocide. Amazing. Campaign. Way back then. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah, yeah. And and that doc that 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 um document is the original document. Wow. The, oh, these articles? The, what these are, this was published 50 years after he died. This is from 1826. And these are reproductions of the essays he wrote, Free Inquirer. And the guy was really funny. I mean, to give you an example, he's a deist like Thomas Jefferson and the others. He said, there's no God up in the sky, but we all have a divine faculty, which is called reason. God, Reason is God within us. And so how can reason conflict with the will of God? They agree with each other. So he said, for example, there was a humorous article he wrote about the the plagues of Egypt in in the Old Testament. He said, you know, when God brings forth these plagues on the people of Egypt, um, when he made frogs fall from the sky, he said, well, if that had have happened in France, the French wouldn't have any any problem with it. They would have just stewed them up, uh, frog legs in their stew, right? Like why? He, he used humor all the time to kind of poke fun at all these austere English bishops. And he got very personal. Uh, there was a guy, Thomas Sherlock, he was the Bishop of London, and he went after this guy. He had a score to settle with the clergy, right? Uh, just like I do, right? <laughs> and it's a, like he he would name this guy and go after him and call him names. And so Bishop uh, Sherlock hired these goons to find Peter on his printing press, like they did, you know, uh, with the rebels in Upper Canada. Smash the printing press, beat him up, throw him in prison. Just the same kind of repression. It's different now the way they do it, but it's all the same. Mm-hmm. Church and state ca- are part of the same crime, and they cannot mm-hmm. be criticized. When you come down to it, right? Mm. So, I mean, it's all in the family genes, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. And a part of this for me is to do with, you know, this theme of, um, it's, you don't hear it much, uh, this term very often these days, but stigmatization. So, you know, anyone who's a rebel, they find a way of like, you know, so that um, you're going to be, um, uh, made uh, like blacklisted by in any way possible, and that that justifies oh, yeah. you being murdered and and the, and it was happened way back then. And there was another an, another fellow with that spirit that you mentioned with the printer that that was also thrown into the canal, you know. But he kept going. Oh, Alliance, that's William Lyon McKenzie. He was the leader in one of the leaders of the, there were two parts of Canada. What's now Ontario was called Upper Canada and Lower Canada was Quebec. And there were simultaneous uprisings in both areas. Mm. And uh, the one in English Canada got defeated very quickly. But William Lund Mackenzie led that. He was a Scotsman who had been uh, 
he had come penniless from Scotland, but he heard about this family compact and he went after them tooth and nail. He set up his own newspaper called the, the Colonial Advocate. He was denouncing the family compact members by name because it was all one family. They were, they were the attorney general, the bishop, uh, church, state, big money, the bankers. They were all part of the big cabal running Canada like now, right? Um, and he went after these guys personally and they would hire goons to go. He would have to, even though Mackenzie had nine children, uh, he had to sleep in a different place every night to avoid assassination. Three times the farmers of uh, Ontario elected him to the colonial legislature. Three times they got thrown out by the family compact. He'd walk in, bar him, right? And he was just tenacious. And he eventually, after the rebellion, there was a price on his head. He went down to, to America as an exile and eventually came back. He was the first mayor of Toronto. Uh, he, he's the one who invented the name Toronto. It used to be called York. Uh, and then he, you know, as a sign of, you know, we should be self-governing, he brought in this name Toronto. And his house is still in downtown Toronto. It's kind of preserved as a museum. Mm-hmm. But uh, very little, few people know about who this guy was, even though his grandson became a prime minister, William Lyon Mackenzie King, during World War II. Oh, was the really? prime minister, his grandson. Oh, and yet wow. the grandfather is all forgotten about. That's kind of the rebellious history we don't want to hear about. Just probably the way 100 years from now, I'll be remembered. You know, kind of like, let's not talk about Kevin. You know, he's too controversial. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Yeah, yeah. You know, how? so getting back to what this book is all about, and how, how do we right. arrive at this, this tyranny? So now we're at the point of the... Um, you know, totalitarianism, the 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 police state, COVID police state, and yeah. um, it's the same game, isn't it, Kevin? Being played yeah. out. You know, we've this this incredible book. Um, you know, you, I mean, it's incredible for, for for many reasons, but but because you go into this such detail, and um, and you know, I'm I'm tempted to if I may, uh, go back to the the element in it um, that, that covers the experience for the for the Indians, the the, yeah. the natives, um, and this woman Gizzy, who's who's basically like she she was the one survivor with her ch- children, three children. Um, the rest of them were incinerated. You know, they literally were hunting them down. They were. Then after the uh, she's thrown on the fire, just like over here in Australia, they they were made to make their own pile. They were called pile, uh, build their own fire, and then they were you know uh, burnt on the fire. And and uh, one at least of the, her children witnessed that. They got to flee. Uh, don't think they all did, but um, anyway. But that that um, the 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 ch- children were they burnt the forests to, to 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 get them out to flush them out that's how desperate they were to get them into this thing but well, that's she, the thing that's the thing that canadians don't understand you know that they've erased that whole part of their memory they they never even taught it of course but even if they were taught it they wouldn't accept it because what literally happened during that time was there were hunting parties and they just hunt native people to death and uh that's why in the story the Yanets give sanctuary to Gizzy and her children and then sell them out to save Philip's life. But mm-hmm. um, the point is that that was the norm. Uh, that's why there were so few Native people left in Eastern mm-hmm. Canada. They, they, 
and they didn't, you see the genocide spanned centuries. It, it didn't get complete till the 1900s on the West Coast as Canada moved, moved West with the railway. And so the phases of genocide were, were slower in a way. It happened over two, three years. But um, th that reality is the same. First, you wipe out most of them. Then you can corral most of them in, in, on reservations and Indian schools. And then gradually, you just let them die off, which is pretty much what's happened. Yeah. Uh, there is no Native identity left. They're not occupying their own lands. They're totally exterminated, just as is happening to us now. So, you know, it's, it's the same process. And um, and here in Australia, um, as you as you reminded us too, that um, yeah, that corralling of the re the remaining ones, uh, because it was a free for all, you know, hunting party, and and, um, and these these fellows here, uh, the the Saskatchewan, this this massacre happened only recently, you know, as as. Well, it's a sign of, of how it still carries on. They were they were the ten Cree people in that picture mm. were in the way of Rio Tinto mining, mm. crown owned, China affiliated company. Mm. And the chief, Wally Burns, was against it. So they hire a killer. He kills seven of his family members in one night. Mm. And uh, you know, as a warning to the rest. So it's still happening as we speak. Yeah, because but, because they well, just they just happen to be um their land just happens to be above, you know. What is it, trillions of dollars worth of diamonds? <laughs> diamonds, right, in Saskatchewan. Now, the point here is it's easy to focus on these dramatic aspects of the genocide, but the point in the book where it's all leading in the end of the book is what is this corporatocracy that the new republic is battling with? It's, it, it, it controls throughout process uh, in the book we call techno-formation, where the human brain is integrated into a computer network. So literally become part of a machine. The human race is exterminated. We're just extensions of a machine now. That was the whole purpose of the experiments and the genocide on the native people to develop an, this technology. So the Republic is really fighting a, a huge uh, attack on, on the, the final stage of the extermination of the human race. And um, my daughter is one of the leaders of the new Republic. Oh, uh, and my, my her name is Adele in the book. And um, she, you know, she keeps the memory. She has a son called Philip who wants to know all about me, her his granddad. And my whole memory has been eradicated in in as is happening now. Yes, people nowadays who Kevin Annett is, there's either unawareness. That's or right. And, That's right. But she's kept the memory of me alive. And my grandson in the future, Philip, uh, carries on the tradition he yeah. battles he carries on the fight after the republic's been crushed mm -hmm. he's part of this underground movement mm -hmm. and uh he carries the family tradition on that's mm -hmm. kind of like the conclusion of the book mm -hmm. kind of an open-ended well what's next people it's in your hands right that, yeah I, I i i really enjoyed how you the author did that so um you know because the wheel was still in turn yeah never mm -hmm. never stops mm -hmm. and uh so that's kind of it was it was great fun writing it. You know, I wrote it last year and uh, it, it the point is, you know, you reach now in my mid 60s, you, you, you've got the sense that you've got to pass on the, the essence of what you struggled for your whole life. And uh, it wasn't just me. I'm carrying on a long family tradition that will carry on after me. Right. And, and, and when you're when you have that sense of being part of that continuity, yeah. you're never you're never defeated because, you know, it's going to carry on. Right. It's a it's an incredible gift actually for us to be bequeathed this work because there's so you know that 
in terms of the trajectory, um, who yeah. in the who in the future is even going to be able to have the brain in here to and the feelings to be able to grasp to well, be able to grasp a, the legacy exactly. You know? Like even if it may not be many, as a matter of fact, you know, it isn't many right now. But the the point is, I'll tell you how I found this book. I got it. 40 years ago, when I was an undergraduate at the University of British Columbia, I was walking through the stacks one day, and I come across, whoa, Peter Annett. Who's Peter Annett? I didn't know about him, because the guy being eradicated, we had kind of a family a rumor about him, but I find his book. And so I say, and this is an admission to the UBC liberalism, yeah, I took the book, because <laughs> wow. I let it gather dust on a shelf when I can be using it to carry on our family tradition. So I've carried this around with me for, for decades. And his spirit is in here. It's inspired me for any of the stuff I've been doing, because it's the same battle, the same enemy 250 years later, church, state, big money, right? Mm. And uh, and so anyway, that's part of the story of how I came across that. So great. I mean, work of my ancestors, that, they've just right? been throwing books like that onto the fires for decades now, <laughs> right? The like, you know, coming oh, yeah. from state, to the library, ditch them, out, burn them. <laughs> we'll carry this on. We shall. You can get it off Amazon, Kevin Annad, or right, uh, angelfire101 at protonmail.com or murderbydecree.com. You can get a hold of it those ways. Oh, fantastic. Thanks, Georgina.